0: Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? This is Daniel Fagella here with Tech Emergence, where we interview investors, researchers, and entrepreneurs in the domain of emerging technology. We've been going a lot into neuro as of late and delving into some of the the crossover of psychology and technology. And today, I'm lucky enough to have one of the presenters I was able to see at the Global Futures 2045 Congress, um, as well as the founder and CEO of CarbonCopies.org, as Mr. Randall A. Kuna, Ph.D. Randall, how are you today? Very good, thank you. Cool. Great to have you on board. I I know, uh, again, I had first seen you speaking up on stage at 2045 with guys like George Church and Ed Boyden and and a number of other uh, Bostonians like ourselves. I suppose who had made it down there to NYC for that presentation on uh, some of the the more far-reaching ramifications of emerging tech. And I know right now for you, substrate independent minds is sort of your domain of focus. For for people who aren't all that familiar, that implies uh, housing consciousness or sentience in uh, other digital substrates than this current wet, squishy stuff that we got upstairs. Um, I wanted to ask you, Randall, how did you initially get into that field, and what got it to click to you, where where you said, you know what, I'm going to dedicate my life to this work? Well, for me, it started very, very early on. Um, When I was young, really young, like, say,
1: a kid of 10, 11, 12, um, I just liked to do a lot of different things. I liked writing and reading and music and all sorts of creative stuff and exploring. And it began to occur to me, as it probably does to a lot of people, that we're really limited, that there are only a few things that we can manage. We can only do certain things uh, because our mental capabilities are there, and we don't have the time to do some of the things we'd really like to do, like explore the universe or something like that. So um, thinking about that a little more led to, to understanding that most of those problems have something to do with limitations with our mental capabilities, with our cognitive capabilities. Um, so I think I was only 13 years old or something, and that's, at that point I pretty much knew that what I wanted to do was to be able to expand that to make that better, meaning to get more access to it. If you need access to it, well, you can either open up what we've got the biology and access that, or you can try to move that to some kind of other substrate where it's more easily accessible, where everything is available and you can directly get in touch with what's going on in the brain. That's kind of how
0: it started, yeah. Wow. Um, and then you went on, uh, obviously, uh, through school and and to the founding of the nonprofit, which is uh, CarbonCopies.org, which is where you're working now. Um, how did that that initial progression sort of move forward? Well,
1: uh, it started by uh, by first thinking that I was going to have to study physics to figure out how this would work. Uh, my dad was a physicist, and that yeah, influenced me a lot. Um, but then soon I realized that dealing with it on the, say, atomic molecular level, that was kind of ridiculous since the thing I was most interested in was what the brain was producing. So uh, it was more a matter of studying artificial intelligence, neural networks, and then the human brain, cognitive neuroscience, yep. computational neuroscience. So that's what I ended up doing. And um, at first, it was clear to me that even though I had already identified a mind uploading, uh, as as the thing that I wanted to be able to do um, that should be created and that I wanted to help create that nobody would want to take that seriously or talk about it seriously at that time unless it was obvious that I knew what I was talking about, unless it was clear that I was taking this seriously from a scientific and technological point of view so I had to work on my neuroscience credentials first so for the first while, say a number of years, I had I had never even been to say a transhumanist conference or something like that, that never occurred. Yeah. It was just a neuroscientist who also happened to have a group that he was in touch with where we would talk about how to do uh, what we then started calling whole brain emulation because we needed to have a more scientific description of exactly what you're trying to do there, um, which is to emulate the functions of what's going on in the brain. To the point where it's as good of an emulator as say uh, a Mac emulator that you're running on a PC, and you can yes. run a Macintosh program exactly the same way as you would on a Mac. Yep. Right. It has to be a really good emulation like that. It has to be the copy that does the functional copy. So um, at that point, I was just trying to uh, to build my credentials and to basically progress through the academic system to do it from there. Uh, I had, as if my full intention was to just be on the tenure track. And eventually get a professorship somewhere, uh, work out of a university, and start working on lab projects that would eventually culminate in working directly on whole brain emulation. Uh, you know, whole brain emulation includes things like working on neural prosthetics and yep. neural interfaces and all that sort of stuff. And um, I, I did a lot of this work at Boston University uh, after first doing my PhD at McGill University in Montreal. And uh, yeah, that that track was totally open. And when I when I started. Thinking about finding a place where I would uh, would start off as an assistant professor and be on tenure track, I got an offer from Spain, where there was this company, Tecnalia. Uh, Tecnalia is a nonprofit research organization there, a very large hmm. one with 1,700 employees. Wow! Uh, and they were just starting a, uh, a a biology-oriented direction. They wanted to become sort of a European Silicon Valley and they wanted to be the research generator for that, and they thought that they were going to set up these different streams in biology, including a neuroengineering direction, and that was going to drive all this. And so they were looking for people from the outside because they didn't have the talent locally, and I was offered the position of uh, directing that neuroengineering department, and I thought, wow,
0: that's great. So I'm, I'm just, instead of having to work my way up, and get tenure track, Yeah, yeah. I can directly jump in and become the director of a department, and I get to have ten years of
1: funding, and I can bring in people. So it, that looked really promising, and so I went. I headed to Spain uh, and worked out of there for two years. And in those two years, I,
0: I guess this was my first exploration of what is research like outside of academia. Yeah. And I found out that there are different different types of research outside academia. And in this case, the research, while it had very large ambitions, ultimately, or at least in in the you know, the description of what they wanted to yep.
1: achieve, um, it had to struggle with the business culture and also with the local culture uh, of how people perceived the sorts of projects you could embark upon and what was doable, what was not. You see, one of the problems if you're trying to build a European Silicon Valley is you need to also somehow emulate the Silicon Valley ethos,
0: this idea <laughs> yeah. that you can try something really
1: ambitious and risky. And not be worried if perhaps you might fail because you can always try again. You know, there's this whole blue sky ventures type of thing. Yep, yep. And that didn't really materialize. It was more a uh, rather frustrating experience of proposing things that they could easily do because they had all these other institutes there that were affiliated with Technalia that could do wonderful material science and things like that, so you could create new neural probes. And then it goes through this process, the managerial process, where yeah, you know, they
0: tell you this is a beautiful proposal, we love it very much, and we'll put it over here on this shelf, and please go make a new proposal. And it, it just goes on that way, and it yeah, seems like a yeah. very, People were comfortable with it as well. It's a part of the culture that you don't have for life, Oh, hold up, really I think you... Just doing that. You're breaking up just a little bit. Oh, can you hear me now, Randall?
1: I can hear you, are right, there was a little...
0: Yeah, that was odd, okay. Um, I just tried to uh, to cut my audio, let me know... Uh, maybe I should cut my video. Yeah, I, I cut my video yeah. as well, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. okay, you're hearing me clear now? I can hear you clearly, yeah. Okay, okay, hopefully this is going to pan out well. Yeah, every now and again connections get funky. So, so, okay, so maybe that the the culture there was sort of part of the, the propellant to get you moving along into your own uh, non-profit project? Yeah, interestingly, I think it was also the reason why I then ended up going to, to the... U.S. Silicon Valley, right? Um, because I'm in Boston right now, but I work most of the time out of San Francisco. Huh. Uh,
1: so I was invited to come take a look at a couple of companies over there. And uh, one of them was a company called Halcyon Molecular. They were uh, a company that, that tried to do next generation DNA sequencing. And it was going to do that just as a means of producing the capital necessary to do a lot of interesting projects in the area of nanotechnology, in the area of robotics and AI, and also of whole brain emulation and and mind uploading. So um, they were willing to, they were actually the first ones who were willing to basically fund me doing almost all of my time just doing work that was directly related to whole brain emulation, uh, and, and just to... Progress that, so uh, I ended up going there uh, and spent two years uh, working on that
0: project with them. Fantastic. Okay, yep. cool, and that's what what lands you where you are today. And now being plugged in at Silicon Valley and seeing what some of the the technology folks are up to right now, we're going to get into sort of the impact on business because tech emergence is to a great extent about sort of the startups that are behind the innovations. We'll talk about the innovations first. Um, you know, the whole brain emulation and, and mind uploading. Again, for for folks that have, really never googled and looked around seems uh, seems relatively far off I have to be a believer that we'll we'll get ourselves there um, and that we'll have to put up with the consequences and do some pretty serious thinking about all that but um, what in terms of initial kind of tiptoe steps in that direction um, have we maybe already even seen in terms of us being able to uh, develop develop either technology that potentially is equipped enough, or some kind of consummate knowledge that we're going to need moving forward. Where where does where is those those tiptoe steps sort of beginning even now?
1: Okay, so you went to the twenty forty five Congress that happened last year. That means that you've already seen some of those tiptoe steps presented because um, I purposely put together a program during the Neuroscience Day, the second day of the
0: Congress, that was intended to bring together individuals who represented each one of the main pillars of what I see as the roadmap towards whole brain innovation. Okay, yeah, what do you see The I, I'm familiar with some of the domains, but I'm interested in your construct. Right.
1: So, it's probably best just to make a step back and say, well, what do you need to do if you want to create a neural prosthesis that is specific to an individual, if you want to emulate a brain? Uh, what you need to do is you need to, like with anything that you're trying to represent, emulate, model is you need to identify what's inside the black box, this thing that you're trying to get at. It's called system identification, which means you need to be able to create functions that represent properly how output is produced from the input that's going into it. And because the brain is a really big black box, you can't do that for the brain as a whole. You need to break it down into lots of little pieces. Now, doing that means you have to look at the way that all these little pieces are connected with one another so that you know how they can interact with each other. And the way that that's done in neuroscience is through this field that is known as connectomics right now. So studying the connections between everything in the brain. And once you have that that map of the architecture, you know how they're all connected. You still need to characterize what each one of these individual bits and pieces does. And that's a functional problem. That's a problem of being able to measure, preferably in vivo, as a person is alive, uh, what is going on at either certain types of neurons or perhaps, and preferably, at every individual neuron in the brain, so that you can get a very good idea of what this piece of circuitry is actually doing, how each one of the components works, and so that as you are creating the emulation, you can actually verify, you can validate whether it's doing the right thing, and you can roll back every little change you make, if necessary. It's kind of an engineering decision as well. So there's this combination of you need to get the structure, you need to get the function. Now, if we look at some of the stuff that's already been accomplished, one of the great changes has been that in fact Connectomics has gotten gotten far ahead in the last five years. If you look five years back and where that was, um, none of the things that we now think are possible were even on the radar at that time. But right now you have some research such as Winfrey Denk who works together with uh, people like Jeff Linkman and Kane Hayworth uh, and also with Sebastian Song. Um, they've been able to scan with an electron microscope, they've been able to scan pieces of visual cortex or pieces of the retina, and uh, they've been able to infer, by looking at the structure of the neurons that are there and how they're connected with one another, what the function of those neurons is, what is it they're doing, and they were able to verify by using functional analysis with a different type of microscopy, uh, that In fact, this is what those neurons were doing. So, they, for example, they were able to develop, tell that certain cells were sensitive to lines that were in a vertical direction as opposed to lines in a horizontal direction, uh. things like that, which is, what, be, what this means is that connectomics has gotten to the point where you can actually make predictions that are relevant for something like a whole brain emulation or like an, an if you want to draw up the circuit diagram and figure out what's going on there. So it's gotten to the point where you can use this as a way to acquire the kind of data that you would need from the structure in a whole brain emulation. It's a proof of principle that's already out there. Then if you look on the functional side, you've got two really important developments going on. One of them is that now, finally, after having put, after, I mean, I've been one of the people who has been trying to loudly ring the bell that this is important, how to get, lots of functional data from basically as many neurons as possible preferably all the neurons and get them at a high enough rate so that you can see every spike happening every neural activation happening so about one millisecond sample rates there is work going into this that is also part of what the brain initiative is about now in fact the group that first made the proposal for the brain initiative is the same group that is most studying this at the moment it's a group that involves people like ed boyden from uh, MIT and george church at harvard and also uh, jose carmena and michelle maharvis from uh, from uc berkeley and they are interested specifically in this question how do we get all the activity from all the neurons in a piece of tissue or in a brain and sample it at one millisecond uh, one millisecond sample rates and they've developed different ways of going about it either methods that use a something called a molecular ticker tape that's a uh... a, a biological tool with which you can record what's going on inside of a cell. Or uh, tiny wireless electrodes, which is what the people at UC Berkeley have been working on. And those tiny wireless electrodes would be so small that you could eventually put one in so many locations that you could record from every single neuron by having sufficient numbers of them uh, around just about every neuron or every little group of neurons. And they would be wirelessly connected in a hierarchical net so that they produce all that data that you're looking for. This, this has gotten to the point where they have a prototype in the lab that they're going to be testing in mice this summer. Wow. Uh, so that's actually really relevant. And right now, the size of that prototype is at 126 micron. That is still too big. They really want to get it down to 20 micron. But to get to that size, which is about the same size as the neurons themselves, it only takes moving that prototype to current-day typical uh, uh, integrated circuit technology. So if you build it in a good
0: fab, then you get right down to that size, so it's not a, a revolutionary problem it's more okay. a matter of an evolutionary step in yep. that development now on the other side the great stuff
1: that's happened on the functional uh, domain is, is the work that for instance Ted Berger has been doing who has been showing us that not only can we build neural interfaces that allow you to control a robot arm which is what most people in brain machine interfaces are doing that sort of stuff yep. we, can, we can also use this process of system identification to look at a specific area in his case he looked at the hippocampus And we can identify what's going on there, what does it do when you're putting your rat or your monkey in in a specific task, and then replace the function of that piece of hippocampus with a chip that does the same thing. So it's basically, what he's done is he's built the first prototype of a real cognitive neuroprosthetic, something that is so deep in the brain that it needs to understand how the different parts of the brain talk to each other. that like you know a lot of these things with robot arms they basically make the brain do all the heavy lifting you put an electrode in and the brain learns to yep, understand yep. how to control that
0: electrode yeah brain gate and other similar projects yeah, we've in, yeah we've interviewed three of those folks from uh, from Brown there so right
1: that is not how the hippocampal prosthetic works oh not at all yeah yeah it can't do that it needs to understand what input is coming in it needs
0: to and comes it right out, out. yep yep yep
1: so that is a huge step. And even though it is still fairly simplistic compared to the type of neuroprosthetic you would need uh, in order to replace all the parts that you're looking for in the brain, it is a prototype. It is something that shows that in principle. We can treat the brain as a mechanical device like that, and we can, in fact, replace the functions there. In this case, even with a model so simple that all it cares about is the times at which spikes occur. It doesn't look at anything deeper, none of the protein stuff, none of that. Which is kind of surprising. I think that we'll find eventually that we do need to look a little deeper in I some I think
0: places, so, too, yeah. But, but it's interesting to see how far you can get just by using that first simple model. Wow. Um, yeah, Ted, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, Ted was at uh, 2045 as well. Yeah, he yep. was, yeah. So, okay, nice. And so those are some steps that are uh, occurring. Now, what for you are you most excited about potentially being some of the next-in-line innovations and breakthroughs in this in this domain. Again, for me, this these are all really of paramount import. I think, again, anything that involves tinkering with or creating sentience just has a very high ethical uh, threshold. But you're a little bit more plugged into the hardcore research than I. What else do you see coming down the line in terms of the next big breakthroughs that we may be talking about?
1: Yeah, so I'm obviously... Always following whatever are the prerequisites that are necessary to get to all brain emulation. So I look at it as okay, these are areas where certain things need to be developed more. Here are gaps that nobody's looking at. And so I would say that I am most looking forward to three different things at this moment. Great. Uh, and, and when I say this moment, I say that because I keep updating the roadmap and keep revamping <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. And what are the main problems at this moment?
0: Yeah. So one of them is going, in, it's in the, in the connectomics area, going
1: to high volumes. So having an automated system where you can take a piece of brain tissue, break it up into many parts and scan a lot of them at the same time with multiple scopes so that in a realistic amount of time you can get the structure of a large enough volume that it's really significant, that it really gives you brain circuitry. And that's something that uh, Ken Hayworth is mainly working on. And he's, he's producing actual devices for this process at Janelia Farm. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that happen. On the other side, the best stuff that uh, that I see coming down the line is, in fact, this work that the the group that I just mentioned about, from with Ed Boyden and, uh, and George Church and Conrad Cording and Michelle Maharbiz and the others, what they're doing to try to develop new devices that are going to give us um, interfaces to neurons that can be so small, can be wireless, that you can have them all over the brain, and they can connect with individual neurons and give you that kind of data. This is extremely important. It's not just that ultimately that's what you would like to use to be able to characterize the system for whole-brain innovation, but this is also what you need in order to be able to do cool things with the brain now and in order to to learn what matters in there, which signals are you looking for, what are we capturing, what are we not capturing. So um, if you can put those kinds of wireless neural interfaces into brain tissue, and if you can do it in a way that is not harmful, where it can be there long-term, then what you have is what I would call real brain-machine interfaces, not the kind of brain-machine interfaces that depend on EEG or that have just a few electrodes in some spot so that they can either only capture uh, some signals at a high resolution or they can just give you a very general, vague idea of what might be going on in the brain. But instead, you would have a link that goes directly into the brain circuitry so that you can deliver information there that would normally never end up in the brain or you can receive and acquire information about what's going on in the brain that you would normally never have access to, that doesn't get exhibited directly on the outside. That's where the really cool stuff comes in, that's where the real potential of brain machine interfaces is. For example, just the idea of taking a snapshot of the activity in your hippocampus. Imagine if you have uh, neural interfaces in there that give you kind of the same setup as what Ted Berger has built as a neural prosthetic for his animals. If you have that in there and you can take a snapshot of the activity of your hippocampal neurons as you're experiencing things during the day, then you can file them away, and you can say, okay, I experienced something that I think is important to remember around 2 o'clock yesterday, um, and then you can have that re in your brain so that you learn it, or you can just use those stimulations as the cue to remember what was there anyway. So you can suddenly directly choose which memories you want to remember. You can file them away with dates and times and labels in a sense that you never could before because we use approach, usually an associative approach to
0: getting our memory. Yep. Um, so that's just one very simple example. There are of course thousands, oh, yeah, thousands of formats, just, thousands. this
1: is something that you would normally never be able to do. But with those kind of interfaces suddenly that becomes possible. So I think that's really interesting. And I was mentioning that there's a third thing. The third thing sure. is really in order to make any of these uh, developments available to the general public, in order for us to also drive the further demand for those developments by having the general public involved and not just animal studies and research or patients who need to have uh, surgery for epileptic seizures. We need to have ways of delivering these types of really futuristic interface devices to the places where they need to be without it being a risky procedure, without it being something where you think, well, this is this is kind of, I don't know if I want this capability if it means that I'm going to have to have my head cut open. Yeah surgery is a big uh... it's a big put off for these sorts of things what you really want is something that doesn't give you more pause than say the fact that we take kinds of drugs to deal yeah. with headaches and stuff like that like taking an aspirin okay yep. sure we're putting something in the brain but you know we
0: don't think it's something dangerous we're kind of used to this risk yeah no if, scalpels included right so if you have a
1: delivery method for these interfaces that can bring it there without surgery and you know it can sit there and stay there, and it's not going to do you any harm, then that's suddenly going to open up a huge realm of possibilities for it, everyone.
0: Is that more nanotechnology? I know Kurzweil talks a lot about uh, similar notions in his most recent book. Yeah, right? I,
1: I think, so this is the part actually that I would consider the biggest gap
0: at the moment. Huh, if, if,
1: you'd asked me, if you'd asked me five years ago, or two or three years ago, I would always have pointed to high-resolution, large-scale neural interfaces as the big problem, but yep. now with Uh, With the molecular ticker tape and with the wireless electrodes, they're working on that. That's getting there. But now I would say the delivery method is the big gap, the thing that needs more work. Because there are some ideas of, for instance, using macrophages as a biological delivery tool that can take something, swallow it, deliver it to a location, there. But none of this stuff has been tested. None of this stuff has yet reached the point where you could say we have a prototype in the lab. So for me, that's the other big area to watch, and I think that's going to be an area that I'll try to push and advocate to put more work into and try to get projects going and funding for, it, and, you know, the sort of stuff that I do through Carbon copies, which is to try to focus work in certain areas so that all these little vectors of research start to together to point into the some area that becomes whole brain regulation.
0: Indeed. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, and I think that, you know, what you're speaking to is not just the innovations, but a little bit of the the ramifications and the effect on our day-to-day experience with respect to volitionally determining the extent of our memories or our learning and being able to date and track and, and that's where I think uh, that interaction with um, sentience itself will borderline inevitably maybe whether we like it or not and and certainly I think that there's there's a uh, again a lot of facts to consider there but I think it'll take us pretty far beyond the present human experience and and relatively swiftly uh, beyond human ex- human potential uh, in and of itself. It won't just be um, as you had mentioned before, kind of moving a robotic arm, although you know uh, brain gates work is obviously phenomenal, it will be really extending capacities beyond what they are now, not just ameliorating and fixing uh, what is broken. I think that that'll be a natural outgrowth and uh, rather rather uh, conducive to your 10year old trouble of not being able to master the piano and uh, nunchucks at the same time. Um, so <laughs> Yeah, it starts to weave us in that direction, and obviously there's a million ramifications after that. So just because I realize we're a little bit over, although I, I like the fact that we've gotten to get a little bit into the nitty-gritty of the innovation, folks who are listening in have gotten to hear some very, very big names here between uh, Ted Berner and Ed Boyden and, and some of the great researchers, and there's plenty to Google from here alone, but because you're also plugged in, in Silicon Valley and you're working there a good amount of the time, Randall, um, in terms of where... Uh, sentience and technology, consciousness and technology, psychology and digital technology will really start to overlap the most in the business world. In other words, in terms of startups or, uh, or existing businesses and business innovation, where do you see that starting to step onto the scene? I mean, BrainGate, for example, is not selling anything right now, right? I mean, not now. It's all, we're talking about Uh, research trials, they're they're not remotely in the business world, at least at present, not in any real active way. Most people on the street, even if they're really into psychology and really into technology, they don't know who the heck BrainGate is, and they don't know who Don Hur is or any of those guys. Um, Where do you see these steps forward actually making their way into the biz world and the biz space?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a hard sell in the business world still because um, you can either work on things that are already basically there. You can, uh, say, work on EEG and stuff like that, or you can work in uh, genomics because those things are already right there yep, in
0: the market. Yep. Or you can kind of look at the
1: research area developments and work. And you could perhaps uh, build products that will sell to a research market as well. And it's not like the research market is tiny and the patient market is also fairly large, the medical market. This is true. But, but the, for the, the step towards the general consumer market and having something that you can build a business on that is in the field of neurotechnology, um, it's still a hard sell because there's, that bridge is still missing uh, between the research and the applicable, where something that you would do in a research setting would be acceptable as something it you would too. do. Your own
0: home. Yeah, you can't you can't um, cut your own skull open. Maybe maybe yeah. just to make that more reasonable question for you, Randall. I didn't want to overwhelm you. Even even if it's just let's say uh, exogenous, uh, you know EKG oriented BMI uh, brain machine interface that just has to do with sensors outside the skull without taking. It. There's plenty of companies even right now that are startups in that space. Do you see that game altogether flopping as exceptionally limited? At which some people some people might. No, um, I, I actually don't. I don't see it flopping. Um, I think that what it needs, it, is, it needs a path towards the real types of interfaces. It needs to be shown that the same kind of information that you can get now at low
1: resolution and that you can draw some inferences from, that inferences, every time yeah. you increase the resolution, every time you get slightly better data, your predictions, your outcomes, and what you're using in your applications becomes much, much better. So for instance if you're using an EEG right now to determine what the mood is, what the person's mood is, and you want to use that in say communicating mood to one another or in some other application where you need to keep track of how are your your uh, let's say you're, you're working for um, what do they call it again, the people who, who bring planes in um, flight uh, <laughs> something
0: like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know. They, they hold they hold, hold those little glow cones. Me, but,
1: yeah. yeah. See, I need I need an enhancement in my brain to be able to get <laughs> yeah. back whenever I want them. But um, you know, there, there are, for instance, those situations where some things are critical and you need to know if some state of mind is, is good, and then you might be able to use an EEG to get some kind of idea of what's going in that person, going on in that person's mind. But if you were to use a better interface, you'd get a much better idea of what that is. So creating a platform where you can see this, this progress and where you can have new devices plugged in every year and see an actual progress there and see that people are getting a benefit out of using the devices... Once you can show the benefit, then you've got. Then it becomes cool,
0: and it's like, oh yeah, yeah. 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 This lawyer in
1: this courtroom was better at defending his client. Exactly. And the other lawyer, because he had access to information from the internet directly, because it was spooled onto his, I don't know, his retina or his <laughs>
0: yeah. contact
1: lenses, and he got little uh, zaps from a, a transcranial magnetic stimulation to. Uh, to make it remember something or whatever. If there was, if there's something there that shows up as a real advantage, then other people wanted too because then your people in the stock market want the same type of tool uh, so they can beat out their competition and
0: you know. So, so in, in terms of that utility, do you see that yeah. utility from exogenous BMI to some extent, where we can I let's see it, say to some okay. extent? I, some I extent. think that if you
1: want to get useful information from exogenous devices. Then you need to put a whole bunch of them together because what you have to do is you need to have enough information about what's going on in a person that you can put together an inference, you can get an inference about that you could use in a, in a, in a functional, in a, as an application functional thing. So for instance you might want to have heart rate, um, eye tracking EEG and galvanic skin response at the same time so that you can get a much better idea of what is really going on here and then you can build functions that will categorize what are we seeing and use that in some way. Now, of course, you've got companies like Emotive and NeuroSky who are already trying to do that in a small scale using the devices they've got. I think uh, that's fine, but they need to improve the devices that are on the market because, say, NeuroSky has just one electrode in the front. Uh, that's really uh, very, very primitive, and I'm not even sure that that constitutes using an EEG. As such. Ye-
0: yeah, yeah. I don't know if um, it counts. But I think that if you, try, if you really try in this market, you can develop
1: something that Uses. I mean, we already use other, uh, you know, exogenous information about people by just looking at their their visual cues and all sorts of stuff like that, and we use that information all the time, and it's extremely valuable in our social interactions and our business interactions. Mm -hmm. So you can't possibly imagine that having better, more direct information about that would not be useful when that seems so vital. So so just
0: about finding finding that. That utility that is viable both in terms of price and in terms of function uh, here and now to build a business. Yeah, As you had yeah. said, you know, if you say, hey, in 10 years, we may very well have the technology to build this. Can I have your millions of venture funding? It's a little bit so harder than... You want to make a good a good,
1: uh, a bigger aim. You have to have a bigger aim, something, and you need to be...
0: Oh, for sure. Well, yeah, I think you've yeah. you got to have that, that real... If you uh, can't
1: just say, we want to do stuff with EEG. You need to say something like, we're starting with... The devices that we have and with the information we've got now, but we've got a plan that we're not just building an EEG device. No, we're building something that will give people this capability and that capability yep. and that capability. So it's the capabilities you want to aim for,
0: not the device. So the so, long as, so long as so long as those capabilities correlate to some dollars. But uh but yeah no and, and that's that's something I was recently interviewing a investor up here in Boston um, who runs uh Nextview, this guy Rob Go, very nice fella. And uh, and he, he had talked about something they refer to as kind of the galazo potential. Galazo is, is a, I think it's a, some sort of a Spanish word for a very fancy goal in soccer, uh, galazo. And then they talk about sort of that that big picture, disruptive sort of change. And I think you're more than correct, Randall. If, if, if anything like that is the aim, then we cannot just be thinking about exogenous. So viable and, and important information. Randall, thanks. I, I appreciate you spending as much time as you already have uh, with us thus far, if people want to learn a little bit more about the projects that you're working with right now, whether it's following you on social media or digging into some of your major sites, um, where people, where can folks go to, uh, to learn a little bit more about you?
1: Well, the best place to go, first of all, is, of course, carboncopies.org. So that's, you know, just carboncopies, one word, org. And uh, you then you can also Google my name. If you Google Randall Kuna, that's K-O-E-N-E then you'll find all sorts of stuff about me and my personal site as well. But certainly go to carboncopies.org.
0: Big time. Fantastic. Well, Randall, thank you very much for talking with us today here at Tech Emergence. Thank you.